Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. This is part two of my discussion with Dan C. and Hillary Woodward about an interprofessional approach to treating pain in pediatric patients in the emergency department or urgent care. If you haven't heard the first part, you definitely need to go back and listen to that one before you take a listen to this one. That gives you a good foundation on why we're even talking about this issue. This content didn't really fit into the episode that I I published before, and I did not want to publish a one-hour-long episode. So I split this stuff out, and these are some specific issues around pain in the ED, especially when you're dealing with procedures. First up, we're going to talk about positioning and how getting in the right position that is both comfortable for the child and allows the clinician to do the work they need to do can really reduce the amount of stress and and strife that goes on with these procedures. We talk a little bit about how to address parents and family members and how to bring them in as allies, as well as other ways using these principles and especially using or arguing to get child life practitioners in your, your setting is really useful. You'll hear me ask them a couple of questions to start, and then you'll have Dan and Hillary. Oh, and one more thing. You know, everybody's recording maybe in alternate spaces than they had before. I've been at home a lot more than usual, and you will hear the official dog of the Little Big Med podcast in the background. He's chirping at me, trying to say that I had not taken him to play fetch yet that day, which is a reasonable complaint because I hadn't. So you'll hear him telling you that. What about positioning? This is something I don't think about very often, but like, you know, I think many physicians, I'll throw myself out there. The number one most important thing to me is that the kid is held in the way that makes it easiest for me to do the procedure, which is not maybe always the best way to to actually get things done. I, I think about this a lot too. As you were speaking, I was thinking back to being in training and in my child life internship and I would get so hyper-focused on what am I going to say and what am I going to tell the kid that I would walk in the room and immediately forget the obvious things like, gosh, the caregiver has no place to be. What can I do to sort of rearrange the environment to help them be involved? So that's, I think, one of the first things I'm most attuned to is I unless it's the caregiver's preference, I never want to create a situation in which you have several clinicians around a child and a caregiver in a corner. What can we do to actively involve the family member? So a lot of times that will involve dropping the rails on the stretcher so the the caregiver can hug the child, sit next to the child. It can involve pulling the stretcher out from maybe where it's positioned so that you actually have space 360 degrees around the bed so that clinicians have a lot of flexibility in how they adjust themselves according to what works for the child. And there's a great body of work surrounding positions for comfort that recommends ways that you can actually involve the caregiver in holding the child in a secure way, which is, I can't speak totally from the physician's perspective, you or Dan could do that better, but it allows the child to be in a beneficial position without the child feeling as much as though they're being restrained or just pinned down. I would agree. You know, if you're going to ask for the physician's perspective, you're right. We do think about first, what is the position that will allow us to perform the procedure most easily, get the most outcome, let's say, for the example of a lack repair. But coming at from the other perspective, if you have someone, a child who is anxious and they're going to move or they're going to be very upset with it, you know, the difficulty in performing a lack repair on a kid who's fighting or not cooperative may actually be even worse and potentially even more traumatic than trying to do it with them sitting in a lap 
you know, sitting, you know, upright a little bit as opposed to flat on their back. So granted, it definitely takes a little bit more juggling, you know, creative um, uh, positioning. But overall, in my experience, I found that when they're calm and when they're happy, uh, it actually does make it easier for me to get the job done compared to having to hold down or coax a kid who is you know, flat on their back, potentially held down and anxious when that anxiety could have been resolved just by some uh, simpling positions, uh, positioning or just being in their parents' arms and lap. One of the most common pitfalls is as clinicians, maybe we try to use a position, but there are just small things we miss and that then we unintentionally sabotage ourselves with success. So an easy example is let's say that we position a child for an IV placement. So maybe we have them in their parents' lap. Um, I tend to like for toddlers and preschoolers for IVs, I really like chest-to-chest positioning. So you might have the caregiver sitting straight upright in a chair, and then you have the child sitting in the caregiver's lap so that the child's chest is against the caregiver's chest. And what you want is for the child's bottom to be in the parent's lap and for them to have one leg on either side of the parent's waist. So they're straddling them. And what that does is that creates no opportunity for the child to use their legs to push up. What I see often happening is that based on the way the position is done, the child has some sort of leverage with their legs and then that causes them to push away from the parent and then that leads to problems actually during the procedure. So that's the first thing is just making sure that the legs are dangling and that there's no way for them to push upwards. And that then was the, the sec- exact tip I was thinking about. As soon as I read that, I was like, that makes so much sense because they, uh, they're they strong if they can get some leverage on you. <laughs> Absolutely. And they're quick. They figure out really quick how to wiggle out of something if they want to. And then the other pieces, especially if you're working on, ex- on, on an extremity or even if you're working with the head or with the scalp, to actually have somebody else come into the room to help you um, hold the extremity. Now, this is where the next common pitfall sort of comes into play. A lot of times clinicians will come in and they'll have somebody just use their own hands to maybe support an arm and then they think that they're finished but go back to the leverage right the child still has so much leverage that they can twist they can turn um it just becomes a matter of who's stronger almost and that makes it really difficult for the proceduralist so if you're able to use a bedside table if you can pull the stretcher next to you you really want to make sure that the extremity, whether it's the arm or the leg, is it a 90 degree angle or as close to it as much as possible and that you have that space to actually brace that extremity so that this way the caregiver can just focus on hugging the child, talking to them, helping to distract them. And you really have some nice bracing on which to complete the procedure. I think the other point I want to bring up is just to dispel the myth that positions of comfort take longer. I think especially in the context of the emergency department, everyone's in a rush. Everyone just wants to get the job done. And they think that pinning a kid down for the IV or holding them down or giving them a sedative is the way to go. When in fact, implementing or just taking that initial time to do the things Hillary talked about for the positions of comfort actually may actually speed things up because you spend less time fighting the kid You've also built in the trust for subsequent things that you might need to do, which also helps you get things done more efficiently. So uh, so that's one thing I think is important to say that positions of comfort overall don't necessarily take longer, could actually make things more efficient in the long run. 
the good news for child life is that sometimes our highest priority doesn't necessarily match the physician's highest priority because the physicians have to triage according to the medical acuity so that tiny lack very likely is not going to be the most acute patient. But for me, my most acute patient is the patient who's having the most difficulty coping. So that might be that tiny lack and that might be where I'm able to put more of my resources. So between that two different ways of approaching it, I find that it actually can mesh really well together in terms of meeting all of the needs of our patients and families. And and Jason, to your point that you brought up about not knowing very much about child life early on, but realizing that they're so integral to our practice, that's actually something that we've tried to do as well, which is introduce child life to our trainees as early as possible. Um, you know, we incorporate them into what we tell our residents, you know, making it the norm as opposed to the exception to get child life involved. We have Hillary actually come and speak to our fellows as part of their standard curriculum and orientation every year so that they realize that not only is child life effective, but it's uh, an expectation like this is our standard of care. And I think to really get that in early, often and consistently, is uh, something I think that's made a difference as well, too. The next thing I want to chat about, which we might need to discuss delicately, is parents and their presence in the room versus not. Do you do you integrate them into what you're doing? I am not proud of the fact that not too long ago, I had a parent uh, who was freaking out a little bit in the middle of a very minor procedure and maybe not quite as kindly as I should have told them like, your kid is freaking out because you're freaking out, get it together, which was not the wording I wish I had chosen. Um, But how do you deal with that? Can definitely be challenging. I view parents and caregivers as such vital allies that I guess I just approach it with the sense of, you know, the caregiver and child are a dyad. And so we have to work with both of them together. And sometimes we very quickly realize that, wow, this caregiver is an amazing help. And I really need to do very little except just reinforce what they're already doing. I almost become just more of the prop and the cheerleader of, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what we need. And that's awesome because that's easy. And then there are other times where, like you were describing, Jason, despite their best intentions, sometimes the anxiety of the caregiver makes things a bit more difficult, especially because of that contagion theory that Dan and I were talking about a little bit before. The child is modeling off of what they see from the adults in the room. And if they see that either the proceduralist or the child life specialist or the caregiver is anxious, it just heightens it that much more. What I try to do is to start with a strengths-based approach and to be able to identify something that the caregiver is doing well. And nine times out of 10, I feel like there really is something, whether it's their desire to be open and honest with their child, whether it's their willingness to try a position of comfort, whether it is their calm demeanor that they might have naturally, just being able to really specifically point that out to them and thank them for it and acknowledge that even before we get going, I think is really helpful in terms of seeing that continue. 
And then once I have that rapport, I might be able to gently bring up sometimes by making it just universal to the room, you know, saying we're all going to try as hard as we can to stay as calm as possible and as quiet as possible. And I know that's really, really difficult, but we're all we're all going to try together and and do it that way. And Sometimes that doesn't do it. And then that's when I can maybe be a little more straightforward, especially if I have that good rapport and say to a caregiver, I, I'm going to make what I know might be a really big ask. You know, the situation is so challenging, making sure to validate that, that the situation is really, really stressful. And it's totally understandable that they might be struggling with it or having a hard time with it. But I'm going to make this a big ask because I really think it's going to help your child. And I think it's going to make everything go a lot smoother and, you know, ask, can we sort of reset and, you know, see what we can do to help everyone be a bit more calm and project a bit more calm. That is a far more successful and professional approach than than the one I took. <laughs> well, and I'll also be honest, that's something that's something that's also been an important reframe for me also in this time in which we're living now when we are hopefully becoming more aware of how different communities that we serve may perceive things. I think more and more about the history um, for some of the communities that we serve. Dan and I are in New York City, so we serve a very diverse population. And for some communities of color, the research and the, the history in the not so decent past was that um, families would be separated and that things would be done without consent. And we know now that obviously those practices aren't ethical. We don't do them anymore, but do our families really know that? So unless we're really inviting them in, there's, I think, sometimes a lot more to what they might be responding to than first meets the eye. And so keeping that in mind has really been powerful for me. But I think it's a great question that you asked, though, because I think making the fact that we actually are reading the room, not just for the kid, but also for the parent, explicit is something that, um, you know, we do implicitly. But if you don't realize that's actually what we're doing, we're incorporating it, we might actually forget it, you know. Uh, You know, I no longer make any assumptions because you just never know what one parent is going to react, no matter how stoic they may seem. But I like Hillary's point about playing to their strengths. You know, you're not thinking about in what ways are they going to freak the kid out? It's more as, you know, what are the ways they can do to help calm the child? But I think the other thing is having, um, you know, sort of like when you're doing any sort of ED procedure, you always have your backup, right? Like if you're going to go intubate, you always have your smaller tube out. Um, If this equipment didn't work, you have another one. I always think of, (laughs) forgive the term, I don't want to call it managing parents, but facilitating parental presence as also having my backup plan available, right? Like, let's say initially they thought they'd be okay standing. If they seem to be getting more anxious, I have a chair at the side, like something as simple as a chair, ready for them to sit down right next to the bed that they can do right away so you don't interrupt the flow or the process you know even having them sit down while they're sitting standing by them and still able to hold their head you know like that's your backup plan for managing things you might not been able to anticipate so that's the other way i also think about it but again you know reading the room up front when you're dialoguing with the kid and with the parent does provide a lot of information but uh you know we're never 100 percent right 
Man, we have, we, this is such a good discussion. We, we are already starting to fill up our time. I don't want to keep you guys too much longer. Um, I do want to touch briefly on sort of two things, and then we're actually going to have an entire separate podcast that delves further into this. But one is how do the non-pharmacologic and the pharmacologic pain treatment methods interplay? And we haven't really chatted much about medications today, but my experience has been that, that they... Uh, almost potentiate each other and, and that the meds are more effective when combined with with other practices. Do you want to comment on that? The first example that always comes to mind are these kids that we bring in for laceration repairs. You know, we kids who seem too anxious to sit still on their own, need intranasal versed or some other sort of anxiolytic, even when they get that anxiolytic, they still do better when they have an integrative strategy, a non-pharmacological intervention, like having distraction, a child life specialist, because they do really work hand in hand. And the way I always describe it to people is that, you know, the medication and anxiolytic, for example, isn't meant to knock them out. It doesn't put them to sleep. It just makes them care less. But if the procedure you're doing is still the most interesting thing in the room, they're still going to look at that. But if you have something else that's going to distract them, you know, it all plays together hand in hand. You know, they're all building blocks of the same tool. And, you know, I, I've tried to think left and right about different ways to actually study this. But unfortunately, child life has become standard of care in our settings, though it would not be ethical to yeah, take it, them out you, of it. You wouldn't have equipoise by, by eliminating them for some patients. Yeah. So... Maybe if there are listeners out there who don't have child life specialists, we can. <laughs> oh yeah, this is a this is a good call for research and collaboration. Yeah, um, it can work both ways. We can get some data and also maybe convince your institution that child life is a a necessary part of emergency and urgent care. Oh, absolutely. And you know, Hillary's had a lot of experience in terms of seeing how it works and how it doesn't work. I mean, nitrous oxide, for example, is another good example of combining the benefits of. Uh, sedative as well as a non-pharmacological strategy to really optimize, uh, you know, the benefits of it. So, you know, I, I, I think they do go hand in hand and like the word you use, potentiate, almost synergistic in a sense. I think about when I was training, I was training in a hospital and this was many years ago now, so it was before LET was very common, but I trained without the use of LET gel ever. We didn't have that. Every single child who had a laceration, no matter how small, got injected with local lidocaine. And now, so it's a very black and white thing for me. Like I can see how my techniques worked then when we had this additional painful portion of the procedure that was always there versus how they work now when for many children, especially with facial lacerations, you can put let gel on and then you have a painless procedure and it's an yeah, amazing it, it's thing. It's a minority of procedures anymore that, that need injected lidocaine for most of my lac repairs. Yeah. And then really all we have to manage and caregivers are often in disbelief when we share this with them that really all we are likely to have to manage is the child's coping and how they feel about the procedure, which we have so many tools at our disposal that we can use and as the options continue to evolve, it's exciting. Now, in the past couple of years, as we've seen virtual reality become another option for non-pharmacological pain management, we've had a lot of success with pairing that with 
topical anesthetics like LMX or EMLA for our patient population that is truly needle phobic, like our school-aged and adolescent patients who come in and we learn that literally they've gone years without having routine blood work because their anxiety is so great. And we're actually able to do it with the combination of a topical anesthetic and the virtual reality. And that intervention wouldn't work if we took either of those pieces as well as our clinician involvement out of the equation. Can we talk briefly about distraction and what your favorite techniques are for during the procedure? Anything that you think works really well or maybe might work well in some patients, but not others? Sure. Hillary. Yes. That's my, <laughs> Hillary is my, sorry, Hillary and her colleagues who are all amazing child life specialists are my favorite form of non-pharmacological intervention during procedures. Period. Full stop. That's it. That's, that is the end. Well, uh, you better figure out how to clone yourself. Well, so, but I think to Dan's point, I never want any of us as clinicians, whether you're a physician, a child life specialist, a nurse, a tech, a respiratory therapist, anything to forget about the power of ourselves. So that rapport with the patient, the ability to converse with them, I think as I've moved through my career, it's become so much less about the tools and much more so about the engagement. And there's so many things that we can do with words, whether it's just engaging them in a conversation about their favorite anything is a distraction, whether it's playing I spy with them in the room quickly, whether it's teaching them a deep breathing technique. There are a lot of things we can do with just ourselves and any of us can add that to our proverbial toolbox. In terms of other techniques, I think it depends a little bit on the age. With infants and toddlers, I really like what some might consider the old-fashioned toys. Um, all of us have probably remembered playing with those little pop-up farms. You press a button or you turn a dial and an animal pops up and then you can put it down. Kids can do that for eons and eons. And you can add in counting, you can add in sound effects, you can add in animal sounds, you can add in singing. So any of those sort of simple cause and effect options that keep them engaged worked really well. And as you get into the older children, it's sort of that same principle. What is something that you can initiate with them that requires multiple steps and therefore will keep their engagement. So it can be a verbal back and forth. It can be something a little more techie, like a game on the iPad. Um, the apps I tend to go for on the iPad are things that sort of have a stepwise approach where it's not you just do one thing or you play this and then you're done. Um, an example being there's different cooking apps where maybe you make a pizza or you make a cupcake and then the child has to choose the dough, they have to roll out a shape, they have to choose a cookie cutter, they have to do all of these different steps. And it doesn't matter what language you speak, it's sort of a universal scenario and it takes them through this stepwise approach and helps maintain that engagement. And then for adolescents, I think then it sort of tends to really focus on choice. I mean, and not to say that it's not a choice for the younger children as well, but I think with adolescents really putting out that menu of options and sharing what other teens have found helpful and seeing what they think would be helpful to them is the key. And a lot of times for adolescents, it's as simple as maybe a stress ball to squeeze or, you know, being empowered and validated that, you know, it's okay to cry. It's okay to, you know, want to hold somebody's hands like that totally makes sense. And adults do that too. And that's a perfectly valid coping technique. 
And Hillary and I have like this uh, traveling road show where we uh, <laughs> would go around and try to do some education around this. And in terms of things that work, one of the things we actually have is a list of apps. You know, I think sometimes for the clinician, because as much as we'd love Hillary and her colleagues to be around 24-7, uh, they're unfortunately not. So we just try to communicate the idea that even if they're not here, we ourselves should all be little baby whisperers, right? You know, Redford was a horse whisperer as pediatricians. We're all like baby whisperers and we should be able to speak their language. And we have that skill, but uh, to augment that skill would be apps. And I I think uh, even myself, you know, I have um, one little folder that has a few select apps that you know, we've gone over with Hillary that sort of give you the quick and dirty way to provide distraction if you're not able to get access to some of these other things that she's talked about, you know. You know, for some reason, Hillary, maybe you can look into this. We can't find your bin of stuff when you're not here, so. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, awesome, I, yeah, right? it's, in a, it's in a new corner. Yeah, I'll, we can, yeah, it's, it's we special, can address yeah. it. Yeah. Would, <laughs> so, uh, would you be willing to share that list of apps? Yeah, we can We sure. can pull together the, uh, the apps that we have. Yeah. That would be great. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes then. And my other addendum to this discussion is distraction is great, but it's also not the right choice for every child. There's a body of evidence that really shows that there are populations of children and adults who really prefer to be able to attend to what's going on and that's how they cope best. So something that I find myself doing often is reminding all of us of that because sometimes it feels unbelievable that this child really wants to have their face in their laceration repair and that's what's going to help them. But for many children, that is the case. So offering it is an option, but we never want to to go back to the discussion of pushing our beliefs or our recommendations on somebody. We never want to force a distraction if that's not something that is right for that child. This has been so good. And I feel like I have enough material for, for multiple hours and podcasts of listening. So what, is there anything else that we haven't touched on today that you want to make sure that the, the listeners or anybody out there who, who is uh, treating children in, in a setting that might be anxiety provoking or, or painful to, to remember or do or not do? Yeah, maybe I'll rephrase it. Hillary, what is the thing that we do that bothers you the most? Oh, well, what a good question. Here's something. I mean, it's often like it's just interesting little things. Like I actually asked Dan a couple of weeks ago when we were doing the fellow session. I'm like, Dan, can you speak to because sometimes I forget. I'm like, is there any reason why when a child has an IV that we still need to give them intranasal versed instead of IV versed? You know, things like that where sometimes we just forget, you know, the optimal ways potentially to do things because of all of those other barriers that we talk about. So I don't know if there's necessarily a fix to that, which is fine. I think it just is what it is, but it sort of speaks to the importance of working together to make a culture where everyone on the team, regardless of your role, um, uses their voice and communicates with one another because I, it's just very apparent. I think especially in an ED setting that we all need each other. Um, In New York, we have the saying, if you see something, say something. And that's related to public safety, but I think it works really well in the ED. And I I certainly don't want any of my colleagues to let me go down a path with a patient and family that they see is not working well or that could be better. And sometimes that's easier said than done. But if we're working on that culture every day, I think it just makes everything better for everybody. Yeah. Dan, you have anything for wrap up? I think it would just be to reiterate the point that kids remember 
And I think that is hard for us to appreciate sometimes, especially in the emergency department, because most of the patients we see are going to be during that instance, during that episode, we might not see them again. We're not going home. We're not living with them. And we're not seeing what, how they're reacting to either medical experiences or even interacting at home afterwards. And really, truly, you know, we have the ability to impact them in such a profound way with just even that brief instance in the emergency department that I think that's something we always need to be cognizant of and that kids really, really do remember. And that is going to be the end of our time today. I wish I had had another hour to just keep talking with these two about how they approach pain in the ED. There'll be a number of resources that they mentioned that are listed in the show notes. So definitely go take a look. The list of their apps and a couple other references are in there. This has been the Little Big Med Podcast. You can find the rest of the Little Big Med Podcast series at www.littlebigmed.com or through just about any podcast player you can find. If you want to find me, I'm on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.